Recently on No Labels Radio. Welcome, everybody. I'm A.B. Stoddard of Real Clear Politics. Thank you so much for joining us. We have a terrific show lined up for you this morning, and I'm so glad that you're here. I'm joined in studio today by Margaret White, Senior Advisor to No Labels, as well as Gary Shapiro, President and CEO of the Consumer Technology Association. He is also a No Labels leader. Uh, And we've had just another incredible week, an historic week here in Washington. I know you were all watching. A state visit from President Emmanuel Macron, President of France, our long true ally. It was filled with so much glamour, so much pomp, so many air kisses, white hats and cherry blossoms. I hardly knew what to do with myself, but it was really incredible. Gary happened to be in the House of Representatives for President Macron's speech, his joint session, um, speaking to both the House and Senate members in the chamber. Uh, and it was really uh, obviously very high stakes. The threat of President Trump's to pull out of the Iran deal. What is going to happen um, with Syria going forward? President Macron probably privately was having a few discussions with President Trump about exemptions from the steel and aluminum tariffs. Uh, A lot on on the plate. Gary, you know President Macron. You've worked um, with him and um, a a bit on on his fascination and focus on technology and his passion about innovation. How do you think, before we get, you know, step back, um, how do you think the visit went? The visit went exceptionally well, in my view, way beyond my expectations. There's a chemistry between these two leaders that I can only harken back at this point to Reagan and Thatcher. It's a, you know, they don't see eye to eye in everything, but the the disagreement is actually visible but pleasant. And it's not hostile in any way. I mean, there's a clear affection between the two, which I did not anticipate. I mean, I wrote about it almost a year ago, and I said these guys need each other for a whole bunch of reasons. They blew up. They're, they're parties, essentially. They are the outsiders that came in and to drain the swamp. Um, Macron has a little advantage in that he handpicked his legislature because it was a new party. And they're rushing through. They got through so much legislation. They got through their own tax bill, eliminating the asset tax and reducing the corporate tax. They've changed the labor rules. They've done a lot of the same things. And they have the same view of the free market. I think Macron is a little bit different in his, obviously his country is different in their viewpoints and they're, they're a little more socialist, but also in that he's, he's a very polite, careful. He doesn't insult ever. Uh, he's a gentleman that he's younger. They both are interestingly married to women that have a 24 year age difference. So, um, it is a different directions. (laughs) (laughs) Margaret, what did you think? Yeah, I mean, I I thought it made me proud to be an American. I mean, anytime there is something that brings us together and the focus back on, you know, our great nation and our democracy, I think it's really a win for the country. And I think, you know, it was nice to see this as his choice for a first state dinner. Um, You know, I think we've all been anticipating when was it going to happen. I think out of the last eight presidents, this is probably the longest time that we've seen pass in action actually having a state dinner, not by much, um, but, but you know, I think by a few months. And so I think, you know, it sent a strong message to everyone, too, about, you know, that partnership with France and, and what that relationship means to this administration. So I thought um, it was great. A.B., what was your take? Uh, you know, I'm interested um, in getting back to what Gary wrote uh, almost a year ago and then his assessment of the visit. Gary wrote that both Macron and Trump need big political wins and they can help each other get them. They can reinforce each other's value and messages. And the, and when you were seated in the chamber, you know, he went on to 
to send out his own message, which does conflict with President Trump, even though there's this obvious chemistry and comfort. And President Macron worked really hard to convince him behind closed doors and then in front of this uh, presser on the world stage to try to consider a new foundation for the Iran deal, um, sort of this amendment package that has no enforcement mechanism but could provide Trump a way to um, recertify uh, by saying it's being reset and reframed and reworked. Um, and he worked really hard on that. But um, The Atlantic said Emmanuel, Emmanuel Macron embraces Trump but rejects Trumpism because in his comments to the Congress against, you know, in support of multinationalism, in support, uh, I mean, sort of against nationalism, against fear-mongering, protectionism, misinformation, all this stuff, uh, and both, and then following subsequently in his comments to reporters, where he said, "I think the president's going to get out of the Iran deal." How much did they get a win together this week? I thought they had a huge win together. I mean, being on the floor of the House, what was amazing is even when there was disagreement, there was at least twenty to thirty standing ovations and interruption of applause, and it was bipartisan, all in but a couple of cases. And one was the Paris Treaty, and the other was the Iran deal. Um, but even then, how he uh, Macron so elegantly express it and sometimes going off off his script. It was actually an emotional moment, I think, for me and for many in the chamber because it was for a person who gets excited when you see bipartisanship. You saw a, a Congress united, Democrats and Republicans and the vice president and the speaker standing up and applauding so often on, as Macron expressed, true values. And yeah, there's disagreement. The truth is, I mean, there's, there's valid points on both sides. The Iran ag agreement barely squeaked through. It's controversial. There's a lot of issues that may be working, but there's agreement that it has to be modified, at least if not changed. There's also on the Paris Treaty, um, you know, it, it's there's agreement and standing ovations about the cause of the planet. I don't think there's a political division on that. The Paris Treaty itself, though, by most accounts, doesn't do much and lets China off the hook. Um, and I think that you know people recognize that once they look at it for two seconds. China is the most polluting country in the world, and we have to pay them, and they keep polluting through 2029 without a break. For those that love bipartisanship, though, this was fabulous, because the bigger issue that I see is that what Macron defined is a new world order a new order for this century. And it's the cause he's talking about is the one we should be talking about. It's the case of democracy and freedoms and liberty and religion, religious choice and access to technology and the internet versus a lack of privacy, totalitarianism, shutting down companies, shutting down the internet. And, you know, China's going forward with this, this new policy that, that is so clearly designed to win the world over to a, a very strong central government without individual liberty. And that's the battle that the Europe and the U.S. and Australia New Zealand and a few other countries are going to be for the hearts and minds of the rest of the world. And that's what Macron was talking about, that we are together on this because we share the same values. You see it in the Statute of Liberty and you see it in just our concept of what we rights we have as, as Americans embedded in our Constitution. And Gary, you spent a lot of time, obviously, uh, on on the trade issue and the tariff issue. President Trump said, oh, I wish I could just deal with France and not the EU uh, in his public comments seated next to Macron. What do you think is going 
to to result going forward in terms of uh, the tension over tariffs between the U.S. and the EU? Well, certainly there's a lot of issues. I mean, you know, when Britain pulled out, a lot of us were, oh my gosh, they pulled out. They were the voice of reason, but they pulled out because the EU is pretty tough and it's not transparent in how it does things. And frankly, it's in some ways it, it, it attacks successful American companies with very ambiguous language. So I understand uh, Trump's concern because Macron is one, and, and Trump is a relationship guy. And if you understand that about him, you go a far away. And, and there is a relationship there that I would bank on. And the fact is France is stepping up. It's, you could see them going, they're stepping up as a world leader. Their economy's stepping up. They had 5,500 people at our trade show in Las Vegas, French people. Over 300 companies were exhibiting there. This is like up tenfold since, since Trump led the way at our event and would come every year to Las Vegas and talk about innovation. And he talked about innovation in his speech to Congress. He's painted a picture of a new France and a focus on democracy and innovation and changing the world that way in a very positive way. It's, it's, it's progress with some guardrails that make sense. And I think that's a good way of looking at the world. And with um, Mike Pompeo having been um, confirmed this week, as Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, if we just get back to the Iran deal briefly, uh, as you know, was wanted to rip it up and has now in his role as CIA director before becoming Secretary of State had said he just wants to improve it. Uh, what, what do you think um, about Macron's proposal uh, to, to President Trump that will be obviously buttressed by um, entreaties from the Brits as well as Angela Merkel in her discussions with Trump about trying before May 12th to come up with something that keeps him from leaving it, even though Macron predicted Well, Macron said he tried to convince him. He said he even made the argument that there is, uh, how could you cut a deal with Korea and where will you get the credibility there right, if you're if walking away left. from the Iran deal? I mean, it's a good point, but and there's raised a fundamental question. It's what obligation does a president have to the prior administration and Congress in terms of treaties? There is a question of credibility in keeping your word, which is an important one. And right now it appears to be working with Iran. That's the, the ironic thing is that, you know, the, the Trump administration certified that, the fact that they haven't done anything bad. So I think there'll be a lot of discussion on that. Um, I think I like the idea that Macron... It's, it's a way out where everyone saves face, which is good. So I would I think it's, there's still life left in it. Well, speaking of uh, Pompeo actually getting confirmed this week, um, you know, it has been a long, slow process. And I think we're seeing that now with uh, leadership in uh, in the Senate now talking about rules changes to actually speed up the process. Um, and Gary, you were around back when No Labels introduced a package, Make Congress Work, and you know, one of the ideas in there was up or down votes on presidential nominations. It's not, the process is old, it's outdated. You know, we, we have these long spans of time where really important positions are going unfilled. And I think, you know, it's going to continue to be in the news and, you know, at at the forefront of all these conversations until we actually change the rules, which is something that we're, you know, really starting to circle back on in these next few months um, as we're we're headed into a new Congress. What can we change? Well, that's a, that's a great point, Margaret. I mean, what we're seeing is, is this is no way to run a country. I mean, you know, President Trump makes the point that he, if we follow the Senate process, it'll take nine years for his initial set of <laughs> appointees to get confirmed, and that's unacceptable. I mean, the Democrats are requiring 30 hours on every 
ambassador, candidate, everyone, and it's just, we can't do that. That's not a way to run a country. So the proposal that he was asked about on Thursday morning was what about going 24-7, having uh, the Senate Majority Leader step up and do that? And President Trump endorsed that. And I think that's not a bad idea because it puts the focus on the fact that we need people. And most of the appointees have been super qualified, highly competent. Um, yes, of course, there were Trump supporters for the most part, but they're really good at what they do, in my experience has been. But we need to get them around the world in ambassadorships. We need federal judges. We need people in the agencies. I mean, at the education department, it's, there's one person has been confirmed to, the, to my knowledge at this point. That's, you can't run a department, a government that way. And Gary, you you are you have relationships with all the top Republicans in 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 Congress. You've you've spoken to them. You know what's going on in the House Republican Conference facing a tough midterm election. What do you think is going to be the response if the Problem Solvers Caucus pushes for a sixty percent threshold for the election of the House Speaker next January, Democrat or Republican? That it has to be a my by more bipartisan choice, selected by more members of more of the four hundred. 35 members of the House and not just the leader of the majority party. It depends who you talk to. So if you talk to the younger Democrats, as I have, right. they would love it. They right. want fresh blood. The The average age of the Democratic leadership is in the 70s now and of the House leadership with Almost Paul Ryan. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's in the 40s and 50s. So you have a huge age gap and you have, interestingly, little known fact that Republicans are the one who have the term limits in the chairman and most of them are leaving this year, Congress, because they're, yeah. for a lot of reasons. But the point is they have a way of getting fresh talent in all the time. The Democrats don't. And the, But there is frustration at the speaker level, I think, for a variety of reasons. And I think the rank and file may of both parties may like that 60%, but the people who feel they pay the dues to get up to the top, they may not like it so much. Right, well, what if they just say, okay, I'm gonna run around, I've been working really hard to get into this position to replace Paul Ryan or Nancy Pelosi, and so if this is the pressure and there's grassroots energy, I'm just gonna have to run around and try to get enough Democrats to reach my 60% threshold, right? Okay. You make some promises about process, it would be interesting. I mean, the challenge, obviously, <laughs> is this, everyone thinks the speakership has a lot more power than it does, which is why the, the life <laughs> appears to be getting shorter every right, year. Right, three years. <laughs> Very good point. All right, well, we, there's much to discuss today. We have a great show lined up for you. I'm A.B. Stoddard of Real Clear Politics, along with Margaret Wright of No Labels and Gary Shapiro of the Consumer Technology Association. We'll be back in a moment to talk to Congresswoman Stephanie Murphy. Hear more of No Labels Radio, Saturdays at 10 a.m. East on Sirius XM's POTUS Channel 124. Click the free Sirius XM trial link and start listening today to No Labels Radio exclusively on Sirius XM's POTUS. Welcome back, everybody. I'm A.B. Stoddard of Real Clear Politics, back in studio with Gary Shapiro today. He's CEO of the Consumer Technology Association and, of course, Margaret White, Senior Advisor for No Labels. You need to go check up on our website if you haven't been there. Um, I hope you're already a member, but please go to nolabels.org and find out more about what we're up to. There's a lot going on this spring and summer and fall. On the phone, we are joined, as promised, a great uh, guest lineup today. We have Congressman Stephanie Murphy, um, Democrat of Florida, and she uh, is member of the Problem Solvers Caucus. Congresswoman, welcome and thank you for being a member of the Problem Solvers Caucus. Thanks so much for having me on. So, it's so interesting um, how much the gun debate uh, really took over after Parkland. Um, and, of course, the Congress did pass some legislation on school safety. And then it's really um, gone silent on Capitol Hill as 
it still continues to to be a, a, a raging debate around the country um, with increased energy behind this voter registration, um, lots of pressure uh, in terms of the campaigns. You're hard at work on this, still trying to bring uh, Democrats and Republicans together. Tell our listeners about the Gun Violence Research Act that you have. Um, I, I'm so impressed you have 170 co-sponsors uh, on the bill, which sounds like it's incredibly bipartisan. Well, uh, A.B., I'm really excited to actually say that in addition to the school safety um, measures that were passed, the the initiative that I had been leading to lift the 22-year ban on um, CDC um, uh, research into gun violence was also passed. So we actually got a win in this um, uh, with the spending bill. Basically, over the last two decades, something called the Dickey Amendment has had this chilling effect on federally sponsored gun violence research. And as you mentioned, I had led an effort with over 170 um, co-sponsors on a bill to basically lift that to ensure that the CDC could conduct this research. And just as you said, after the Parkland shooting, uh, gun violence uh, prevention really took on um, new life. And with the help of the Parkland students who put their voice and demanded action, and with the um, collaboration of my Republican colleagues, it was after Parkland that that bill um, received support from the Republicans, um, we were able to go into the spending spending bill negotiations and secure additional language that would make it absolutely clear that the CDC has the authority to conduct um, gun violence research. And I think it's so important to have this data and information um, on an issue that is um, taking so many lives in this country. Congresswoman Murphy, this is Margaret White. So great to have you on. You know, something that our listeners may not know about you is that you were also a former college instructor and uh, served in the U.S. Secretary of Defense as a national security specialist. You know, so it seems to me that you've really got the right credentials and background to, you know, really spearhead this effort on gun safety. Tell us a little bit more, though, about why you're so passionate about it. Is it really, you know, your background and experience or was there, you know, another reason that really energized you to to lead this charge? Well, I have the honor of representing Florida's 7th Congressional District, which is in the Orlando area, and the Pulse nightclub shooting deeply affected my community. And in fact, it was one of the reasons that I decided to get into this race, having never run for elected office before. But watching what happened um, at the Pulse nightclub shooting and seeing the inaction in government and the, uh, the my predecessor had served the community for 24 years, but he took a check from the NRA just two days after the Pulse nightclub shooting. And I really felt like if we were going to get some change on this issue and a wide range of issues facing this country, we needed to send different types of people to Washington. And so I got into the race, and um, it was a big motivator for me to get engaged in, um, poli- in, in policy making. But the other thing is that I'm a mom of a seven- and a four-year-old, and I feel that every American should be able to send their kids to school or see their friends go to concerts and nightclubs and you know, have family members go to church and feel safe, um, feel like our government is doing the best that they can to help lower the uh, incidence of gun violence. 
Um, this week, you also introduced the Opioid Emergency Response Act with Congressman uh, Vern Buchanan of Florida, Republican colleague, so bipartisan uh, leadership on that bill. Can you tell us a little bit um, about that and, and what we expect to see coming out of that uh, new legislation? Sure. Um, you know, the, the truth of the matter is that the opioid epidemic isn't a Democratic problem or a Republican problem. It's an American problem. And for us in Florida, it's a particularly severe problem, um, and especially in Central Florida as well, uh, where I um, live and, and uh, my, my constituents are. So I was really proud to work with my Republican colleague, um, Congressman Vern Buchanan, to propose this um, a set of bipartisan solutions that will help prevent and treat opioid addiction and crack down on the criminals who profit from this crisis. Congresswoman Murphy, um, could you explain what um, what sorts of provisions um, you're including to enhance uh, what law enforcement can do? What I understand treatment um, and rehab. Uh, support that people need but what is it what is it that you that we need to do in terms of strengthening I, I know they're completely inundated and overrun um, we, and, and this is the bulk of their day in many many communities and localities uh, dealing with the um, these overdoses what what kind of support or reforms do do law enforcement need well, so the first thing is that we're trying to um, crack down on uh, the illicit drugs and criminals that supply them by modernizing um, uh, outlawing 13 synthetic drugs that have been identified by the DEA as an immediate threat to public health and provide a streamlined approach for sentence, sentencing um, synthetic drug uh, trafficking in federal courts. But, you know, this is an issue that can... Um, we can engage uh, not just through law enforcement. So, for example, our bill includes um, a provision to help stem the flow of dangerous drugs like fentanyl and carfentanil into the United States by requiring more intensive screening at U.S. Postal Service facilities. So we can have the Postal Service um, aid uh, our law enforcement by being um, a, a more um, uh, intensive uh, check on, uh, you know, drugs that are coming into our country. Is that because, um, but are they coming in through the Postal Service or people buying stuff online? Is that prevalent? Yeah, you know, they actually um, oftentimes ship uh, the drugs in from places like China and um, other places where it's coming in through our mail services um, just as much as you would imagine uh, it, it coming across borders. And what is the misunderstanding um, in terms of of uh, treatment and support for rehabilitation? I mean, there, people think, oh, you know, we need to spend more money, but is it, it, it obviously needs to be spent in a more strategic way. You've taken a close look, closer look at this than, than most people have. What are the kinds of things that need to happen to... Um, to help with with treatment and, and support and rehabilitation in this area that's like I said growing so fast that pe that that people are not able to change their clinic um, direction their the way that they establish um, um, you know providing resources directing care to patients um, how, how is that how are you addressing that in your legislation 
Well, I think, you know, it's about making treatment more accessible. And so we're um, providing federal grants to states to help them improve access to treatment and support patients in recovery and prevent overdoses. But in addition to the bill that I have with Congressman Vern Buchanan, I have another bill called Road to Recovery Act. With Cong- oh, He's also a Republican, Congressman Brian Fitzpatrick from Pennsylvania. It would a basically- problem solver. <laughs> yes, he's another problem solver. Um, it's basically It basically would authorize Medicaid to cover addiction treatment at certain licensed and accredited residential facilities. We have to look at making sure that people have sufficient access to treatment. And so these are two two, um, attempts to do that. And then I think the other thing, you know, I'm somebody who believes in legislating from uh, evidence uh, and fact-based position. And so Um, One of the things that we do in the bill with uh, Congressman Buchanan is to establish a new initiative at the National Institutes of Health to expand research on opioid misuse, um, pain, and non-addictive and non-opioid alternatives to treat pain. Um, I think if we better understand uh, the issue, we can help prevent people from um, uh, getting addicted to it in the first place. And I think a measure of prevention is is worth um, just as much as the the uh, um, treatment. Congressman Murphy, this is Gary Shapiro, the Consumer Technology Association, and I appreciate you focusing on such two big problems. Were you in the audience on Wednesday morning when President Macron addressed the full House and Senate and cabinet members and diplomats? Yes, I was. And I had the honor of being one of the escorts um, uh, to bring him into the chamber um, to have him address Congress. Could you? Do, I was there as well in the gallery, and I just would love to hear your reaction, what you felt as he was speaking, especially because we're here at No Labels, a group that gets excited about bipartisanship. Mm-hmm. I I was incredibly moved by the things that he was talking about. You know, I'm somebody who is a refugee and an immigrant. Um, my parents risked an awful lot to allow my brother and I to live in a country that had freedom and opportunity. And so I believe in this democracy. Um, I uh, and. What resonated with me in President Macron's uh, speech was he talked about those American ideals that we share with um, his country, you know, the ideas of freedom and liberty and democracy. But he also cautioned us that, you know, this isn't – these systems don't – they're not self-fulfilling, right? I mean, we have to work on them. We have to invest in them. We have to um, constantly guard against uh, darker impulses that might pull us away from our American values and, and for him, the French values. And so it was incredibly inspiring. And I think it's something that whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, you can rally around the idea of loving this nation and understanding that democracies are not perfect, but are ever evolving and having a role that's positive in ensuring that we have, we we seek that more perfect union. Congresswoman Stephanie Murphy of Florida's 7th District, thank you for joining us and thank you for being a problem solver. Thank you so much for having me on. I hope you have a great day. I may be started with Real Clear Politics, along with Margaret White and Gary Shapiro. We'll be back in a moment to talk to Chris Stegall. Hear more of No Labels Radio, Saturdays at 10 a.m. East on Sirius XM's POTUS Channel 124. Click the free Sirius XM trial link and start listening today to No Labels Radio, exclusively on Sirius XM's POTUS. 
Welcome back, everybody. I'm A.B. Stoddard with Real Clear Politics. I'm back in studio with Gary Shapiro. He is a no-labels leader. He is also CEO of the Consumer Technology Association. We're also joined by Margaret White. She's senior advisor at No Labels. We want you to check out our website at nolabels.org and make sure you find out what we're up to. We're the new center, and we're striking back. On the phone, I have a great dear friend who is... um, Chris Stigall, host of The Chris Stigall Show on CBS out of Philly. He, his radio career has spanned nearly 20 years as producer, writer, and news anchor and DJ prior to making the shift to talk radio in 2007. Um, he's a frequent guest on television um, and uh, all the right platforms. You should follow him on Twitter because it's too much fun. He's also a friend um, and a colleague going back. Uh, Chris, welcome to the show. A.B., it's great to hear from you again. Thank you for having me on. I want everyone to know that you also have the best radio voice in radio. But besides that, <laughs> I want to be honest. That Chris, Chris, my, will get you everywhere. Thank you. <laughs> Chris, my friend, is a partisan, and he knows that, um, that at No Labels, we are trying to enhance and improve and build bipartisanship to problem solve. Um, and he and I have had some really interesting conversations uh, throughout the last couple of election cycles. And, Chris, we want to ask you about the midterms. Things are looking a little bit crazy crazy, uh, a, a win for Republicans in a special election in Arizona the other night turned out to be bad news because um, of the enthusiasm gap and some overperformance by Democrats. What is your general feeling um, all these months out about what you're seeing in the special elections and the state Senate elections and um, the sort of energy that Democrats um, are amassing and the funds they're collecting? Well, as you well know, uh, as a student of this, uh, the the midterms would be less than typical if the party out of power didn't have the enthusiasm behind them. Uh, That doesn't surprise me. However, what is surprising, and as you also know, uh, I look at a special election like Pennsylvania 18 that just happened uh, a month ago, and you look at the Democrat that won that by a whisker, and you see how that Democrat ran and won. Um, He ran as someone who was running against Nancy Pelosi. And if you took the little D from behind his name, I would think there would be very little way of telling that he wasn't a conservative Republican based on the platform and the policies he ran on. So I I think it a little difficult to pigeonhole this as Nancy Pelosi style liberal Democrats have got the wind at their back. I don't know that I necessarily necessarily see evidence of that. I don't I don't know what the Democrat momentum is by definition, if that makes sense. I, I don't I don't think it's a hard left Democrat agenda that seems to be driving the party. If the momentum's there, perhaps it's anti Trump and that's certainly fair to say, but I don't I don't get the sense that the Democrats that are running in these midterm elections are running hard left. Um, uh, Chris is talking, of course, about Connor Lamb, the congressman who won Pennsylvania 18th special election. And Chris is right. He is. Um not only of an impeccable story, a Marine and a federal prosecutor by the age of 33, but he also never said he was a Democrat and he never spoke about Trump. So that that's um, certainly uh, true. What are you feeling about um, the other shifts in Pennsylvania, um, about Charlie Dent's district, about the redistricting decisions? What, what are you feeling about your state is going to be so critical this fall? Um, terribly partisan, candidly, Pennsylvania Supreme Court. Um, the, the one sweep, if you want to call it a red wave, that happened in 2016 that did not happen was on the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. Those elections actually went to the Democrat-leaning justices' favor. 
And what that led to was uh, a Republican legislature in Harrisburg redrawing congressional districts that the Pennsylvania Supreme Court ultimately rejected. And they told the legislature, redraw them with the governor's approval or we will. Well, uh, Governor Tom Wolf, a Democrat, didn't care for the Republicans' uh, counteroffer on the new districts. And so the, the Supreme Court redrew them. And not surprisingly, they redrew them in um, in a way that pretty handily favors Democrats. Uh, although, uh, interestingly, it, it has some uh, NAACP folks quite mad. You had some exclusively minority-driven Democrat districts that are now spread out among a, a more white population and uh, some some folks of color particularly on the left are very unhappy also at what the Pennsylvania uh, Supreme Court did so it's <laughs> it's tough for me to say that Pennsylvania is a fair window into what's coming this midterm because the the state has been so kind of uh, gerrymandered in its own way from the Supreme Court and constitutionally I don't believe they have the right to do it in fact Pat Toomey and other members of the Harrisburg legislature have suggested impeaching these justices over it. Um, so, you know, then yes, I, as you said, as a partisan, uh, I think they're well within their right. Constitutionally, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court should not have been redrawing districts. And so, but because they did, and it looks as though it's going to stand, yes, it will have a dramatic impact. And there's no doubt more Democrats will be headed to Congress from Pennsylvania. Well, Chris, uh, we'll have to have you back on in a few weeks after that primary takes place and, and get your take on on all that that transpires. I guess that's uh, May 15th, one of the next ones up. So we were just on before uh, with Congresswoman Stephanie Murphy and, and talking about some of her gun legislation. Clearly, that's been a really big topic um, over the past several months. And, you know, the, we've had the March for Our Lives. You know, we've seen a lot of these young people turning out in large masses um, to be parts of those different walkouts and, and marches in the such. How how much do you think that the millennial generation, these younger voters, are actually going to have an impact on what we see at the polls? I'm skeptical, highly skeptical, uh, and, and not because I don't think there's a sincere passion uh, or a wind at the back of many people who care deeply about it, but um, <laughs> In this day and age of social media and uh, 24-hour news cycles that just seem to swallow the next, I I don't think that this has the legs and the staying power to take us into November as an issue, quite candidly. Um, it, there's been no evidence in the past, unless you can correct me, that suggests uh, millennial turnout or younger uh, younger people, yeah, that 18 to, what do you call that, 18 to 25, the youngest skewing voting demographic, Particularly in midterms, it's anemic. It's always been anemic. I have no reason to believe it, it will be otherwise, frankly. That's, that's sort of my view. And people may say that's cynical, but I just haven't seen any reason to believe otherwise. Chris, Unless you disagree. Chris, this is Gary Shapiro here. That's a very interesting point of view. And, um, you know, the, the thinking is that Democrats are motivated, especially young Democrats are motivated, and they're certainly winning in the fundraising wars right now. And definitely Republicans are scared. But you're saying that in your gut you're not seeing that in Pennsylvania. I, certainly I agree with you. The gun issue may not be one to, to sustain the momentum to November. But is it, is it, is it the Trump issue? Is like what, is the, what do you think will matter in a few months that will determine who controls the House and maybe even the Senate? I think there is a real risk, and you're seeing it now with several Democrats saying, let's back away from talk of things like impeachment. 
I, I think there is a real risk of Democrats overplaying their hand. I, I'm not suggesting for a second there's not momentum and wind at the back of Democrats. It would be stunning if it weren't. Uh, I am saying that it seems as though strategically as a party, the Democrats, many of them, not all of them, but a great number of them, well, Ron Emanuel, just this last week, Ron Emanuel out of Chicago said, Democrats, you need to be cautious. Uh, this impeachment talk is is overplaying your hand. Don't do it. He cautioned the party to back away from it. So that's the kind of thing I mean. I don't, I don't know that there is the Trump fervor uh, against him that, that perhaps we're led to believe. Now, I also don't think that there's uh, underrepresented enthusiasm for the man necessarily, but I don't. I think it's overrepresented how loathed Donald Trump is. I genuinely believe that's overrepresented. Hmm. Do you think the tariffs, uh, if they come into play, because there's a lot of question, it could happen in the next couple of months, $150 billion worth of imports from China, if that's raising prices or in the holiday fourth quarter around the election, you think that's going to, or, or, or more likely, just causes tremendous uncertainty, stock market drops. Do you think that'll have an impact on voters or not? It's a strange thing. The trade issue, particularly, Gary, is one that's been odd to talk about in Pennsylvania because, as you know, the, a good chunk of it being a sort of a rust belt quadrant, uh, and you're talking about a lot of steel country and manufacturing country that's seen some pretty devastating job loss. Uh, tariffs that the president imposed and the promise of bringing steel and coal back to work, you know, our neighboring West Virginia and Ohio and, and that south uh, east or western quadrant of Pennsylvania really ate that up and it resonated with them. Um, I still, if I'm to be honest with you completely, I don't have a sense of whether that Joe and Jane Q lunch bucket blue collar worker likes to hear the prospect of jobs returning tariffs on nations that aren't engaging in fair trade over how's their 401k doing? Yeah, how, how's the stock market doing? It's a strange dance that I, frankly, I haven't, I haven't quite figured out with my own listeners just where they are yet. I'm with you on that one. And Chris, um, yeah. that's, it's a good point you made earlier about younger voters. They don't tend to turn out in midterms at all. Midterms tend to be an elect, represent an electorate of older, whiter, more conservative voters. And that would have to change dramatically uh, or Republicans would have to come out, I guess, against Trump um, to, to really make the difference, I guess, in a lot of, of these districts. Um, where what are you hearing about? Um, I was going to I was actually going to ask Gary's questions about the tariffs. So interesting because the there there's not a lot of juice left about the tax bill. What are your conversations about with your neighbors and your friends and your listeners about about that? The polling goes up, the polling goes down. Uh, the, the the lawmakers in Capitol Hill would like President Trump to talk a little bit more about it. Uh, what's your feeling about where that is in terms of sort of it, it's their big accomplishment and they have to run on it, but how? sort of consequential it's going to be in the conversation come august september october i'll be the first to tell you that the gop is one of the worst representatives of themselves of themselves they there are i mean oh, and, and frankly were, were, were it not for people in talk radio i don't think the gop would be able to sell themselves um they're 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 a train wreck i i and i i make no bones about it i i you know while i'm a partisan yes i am not uh, a flag-waving gop member um this is a party that cannot seem to sell its way out of a paper bag. And I'm, I'm not sure why. I mean, I, I hear things this week, 
this past week that Mitch McConnell is now talking about trying to figure out how to fast track some of Trump's nominees. And I think now, Mitch, now, Senator, you're now you're you know, a year and a half in you're now trying to figure out how to fast track them. It's it's that kind of thing that makes. And, and that's why I say Democrats might also have an advantage, A.B., by the way, is Republicans are just so darn frustrated with the party. Yeah, and real so quick, Chris, not, who is the Republican yeah. voter who turns out to defend the majority this fall with Trump not on the well, ballot? And, and that's the problem. Without Trump dragging them along, I don't think the GOP can get it done by themselves. I really don't. Wow. That's um, that's really interesting. Last question really quickly because I'm running out of time. What's your feeling on um, Iran deal, nuclear deal? Mike Pompeo was confirmed comfortably by the Senate this week. He is obviously already started the North Korean negotiations. Um, what what do you think um, is, is going to be happening um, with the Iran deal and the, and the nuclear summit with North Korea? Well, the the North Korean prospect is is a very very interesting one. Iran's a little more complicated. The one in North Korea, uh, you know, Trump certainly can tout that this is a conversation that not many administrations prior have even entered into the fray. Uh, and Pompeo being able to pull off that conversation privately over Easter was huge. And incidentally, note my neighbor in Delaware, uh, the Senator Chris Coons, who didn't. Uh, give him an upvote out of that committee, but did end up standing down and voting present. That's because two of the three counties in Delaware were Trump counties. Uh, and I think Chris Coons is aware standing in the way of Pompeo would have been bad politics. So again, tying it back into the November, I think Democrats could run the risk of being too obstructionist on, on folks like Pompeo and other nominees. But um, I think there's real cause for optimism. Uh, if, if we're sitting down and at least having a conversation, that seems to be a start. Chris DeGaulle of The Chris DeGaulle Show uh, on CBS in Philly. Thank you so much for joining us, my friend. A.B., it's a pleasure. Margaret and Gary, thank you both. All of thank you. you. Thanks. Thanks so much. We'll be back in a moment. Uh, I may be started with Real Clear Politics. I'll be joined on the other side of this break by Margaret White and Gary Shapiro. You're listening to Sirius XM's POTUS Channel 124. Hear more of No Labels Radio, Saturdays at 10 a.m. East on Sirius XM's POTUS Channel 124. Click the free SiriusXM trial link and start listening today to No Labels Radio exclusively on SiriusXM's POTUS. Welcome back, everybody. Thanks for staying with us. I'm A.B. Stoddard of Real Clear Politics. You're listening to No Labels Radio. I want you to go to nolabels.org to learn more about what we're up to. A lot is going on that you need to engage on. I'm joined in studio. We've got Margaret White in the house and Gary Shapiro. Margaret White is senior advisor to No Labels. Gary White is a longtime No Labels leader, and he's also president and CEO of the Consumer Technology Association. Um, It's been really interesting, guys, talking to... um, to particularly to Chris in the last segment about um, about just what is that sort of what is going to be the motivation of the voters who turn out for Republicans this fall versus voters that turn out for Democrats because we were talking to Congresswoman Murphy about what motivated her to become a member of Congress was the gun issue the Pulse nightclub shooting and how much that's resonating as an issue obviously in Florida uh, and then um, whether or not that is going to carry over into uh, increased voter turnout this fall, because it tends not to be a, 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 a measurable um, sort of deliverable in terms of, of, of voting patterns. It's just not an issue, gun control, gun safety, that we've ever seen sort of, quote, show up at the polls. Gun rights does, different sides of the abortion debate, 
you know, sometimes immigration, but for certain, we've not seen this before. Uh, and when we were talking to Chris, you know, he doesn't think that the kids are going to turn out. Uh, Democrats are trying to motivate members of the coalition, Gary, that did not turn out for President Obama, but reelected him in 12. Ghastly midterms in 10 and 14 Democrats didn't show all the, the different coalitions that support president supported President Obama. Um, as, as you look at sort of the Republican coalition right now, confused about what the trade issue is going to do to them, what are the tariffs really for real? Are they coming? Uh, how's the tax cut playing? What is your thought about um, about what uh, is going to motivate them or or um, or or not motivate them, sort of contribute to apathy? So, you know, it's interesting. So it's, I give to politicians of both parties personally. And I get, therefore, I'm on every mailing list of both parties. And you see how their positioning is changing. It used to be just anti-Trump, anti-Pelosi. That was the motivator. Now it's all about we have to, the Democrats are shifting. We have to make sure that we're in charge to stop this this terrible thing that's going on in the White House. It's shifting in tone. And also, these they're, they're talking about the Republicans have blown up the deficit and it's going to hurt Social Security and benefits. The Republicans are talking about just preserving what they have so the Democrats can, cannot you know, just stop everything they try to do. What's interesting is there's not that much talk about the taxes anymore, which is really should have been the Republican strong suit going in this year because there are people are getting the benefit. Um, and in talking to the members of Congress of both parties, as we have, the Democrats are watching this tariff issue with some delight because they kind of support it in some ways, given their union supporters. But they also think it's going to blow up the Republican Party. And you talk to the farm state uh, Republicans, especially, this is almost death for them. They are petrified. Absolutely. They've, and, and then there's other Republicans. This is not who we are as a party. We're not against the world. And what they're ignoring is just not about the tariffs. It's about the uncertainty. And I think that's the message the business community is going to start getting across more and more now because there's still a month or two left to play before there's any real decision. There's no real negotiating that appears to be going on, although this past week they were going over to meet with China. Maybe something will come out of that. And the scenarios for getting out of it are, are limited. You know, one scenario is something good comes out of Korea and you, and you give China some credit and then therefore they're good. I mean, Trump has said, I'll take bad trade for a Korea deal. Um, another scenario is there'll be some uh, uh, stock market implosion. And every 2% change in the stock market under Trump has been tied directly to the tariffs issue. And the scenario is that there'll be, uh, it'll look bad and then we'll delay it and say, well, let's work this out for a year and have some serious <laughs> negotiation. But in terms of actually coming up, the, the big list is yet to drop of what products are affected. And it's going to be a big list because Trump is keeping his promises. He said $100 billion worth of products. $100 billion is a lot of stuff coming in. So it's going to hit all, all sorts of consumer products. And you talk to the, the companies like uh, Costco and Walmart and Best Buy and Target and others, they're trying to plan their holiday selling. And the people that sell them are trying to plan. And they are perplexed and amazed that they could have this uncertainty now about a 25% price difference. And the hitting at the holiday time, wow. So there may be a pack there. Maybe it won't be. I don't know. It's hard to say. It's so true. I mean, anything and everything will happen between now and then, Margaret. But to Gary's point about the taxes, so interesting that in the race that we spoke to Chris DeGaulle about, the Connor Lamb race, Pennsylvania 18, the Republicans started doing ads on taxes and they shifted out of that and went to sanctuary cities. Just always back to, you know, the galvanizing, most divisive issues instead of their big signature achievement of, of last year. 
Right. And I think, you know, Pennsylvania really is fascinating. I wish we could, you know, spend a whole show just talking about that as it's coming up, you know, in in just a few short weeks. And I think Ohio is right before that um, in May, uh, that first Tuesday. So we're going to have a lot to talk about coming out of those two states um, actually casting their ballots. And it will be interesting to see, are there more Connor Lambs and Dan Lipinski's prevailing? Or, you know, is this loud outcry that we're hearing from the extremes Um, you know, is that prevailing? So what kind of candidates are we going to be getting out of these primary elections? Also, Gary, don't you think that we'll have a better sense in a few months of who those 71 Democrats who are running for president in 2020 (laughs) are? I mean, probably before November 6th, right? We're going to start to see them dropping by picnics in Iowa and trying to get a national platform going. And that will definitely infect the campaign. Well, certainly. And because it's such an uncertainty campaign environment in terms of who will own the House or even potentially the Senate, I think you'll see a lot less legislative action for the rest of the year. Oh, that's There's done. The, <laughs> so, the, so the issue really is, is it, you know, why is Trump, who has had an amazing economic story, plus he had some global wins as well. He has all the momentum right now. Why is he stepping on it in some ways? He's had a good couple of weeks, you know, with Macron and, and, and some uh, confirmation of Pompeo that... Maybe he'll step back and declare victory and try to move forward and focus on the positive, but he'll continue to dominate news with things we can't even anticipate. Well, they did set up a nice event on the taxpayer dollar to talk about the success of the tax reform package. And he took a piece of paper, as you all remember at the start, and said, this is really boring and started talking about his election victory in 2016 (laughs) and everything else under the sun from that day. So he's not a stick to the script guy. No, he's Uh, not. Yeah, that'll be um, an interesting part of, of the debate going forward is that we don't know um, even as as you meticulously outlined about the different which ways things could go on tariffs, what he'll say about them in terms of the campaign messaging, Republicans are very concerned about that. You know, sort of how he'll couch it as we're yeah. getting into those final stretches as they see polling and see what voters are responding to and how mad the soybean farmers are. Well, the um, real issue that I'm seeing is, is the economy's done amazingly well. If, if he didn't screw it up with her, we could have hit 4% growth, but he's put in a certainty. We're, we're starting to battle with China. Qualcomm's laying off thousands of people. Others are start layoff. It's going to be an issue. Yeah, yeah, for sure. What a great discussion today. Thank you, Gary Shapiro from the Consumer Technology Association. Thank you, Margaret White, Senior Advisor to No Labels for for joining me. Um, I want to end um, by telling everyone that um, it's really a tough weekend because we are losing our producer, Dennis Craig. Uh, this is his last show, and I want to tell you that um, you cannot find a more hardworking, uh, a smart and dignified and decent soul as Dennis Craig. He is of the utmost integrity. He is leaving to go to law school full time. We best, we wish him the best in everything that he does. He is going to be a star um, and uh, you'll know his name someday. Thank you, Dennis Craig. Um, also, thanks uh, to our producer, Dan Hedding. I'm A.B. Stoddard. You can listen to these discussions if you missed any of them from our show by downloading it on demand through the SiriusXM app. Thanks for listening to No Labels Radio. This is SiriusXM's POTUS Channel 124.
Radio, Saturdays at 10 a.m. East on Sirius XM's POTUS Channel 124. Click the free Sirius XM trial link and start listening today to No Labels Radio exclusively on Sirius XM's POTUS.